After more than a decade leading the State Office of Victim Services, Elizabeth Cronin departed from the office in January and swung by the Capitol Press Room Studios for her HR-mandated exit interview. Welcome back to the program, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. So what's prompting the career change? Is this a, a full-blown retirement, or are you taking on a new 9-to-5? Well, I'm taking on a new role. It was a tough decision for me to make because I have loved this agency with all my heart. We have done a lot of work in the area of mass violence response, and I'm very interested in that. And I am going to the National Mass Violence Center out of the Medical University of South Carolina. So it will be a full-time job. Well, we'll miss you here, but enjoy the weather. <laughs> Thank you. So let's rewind back to 2013. What led you to take on the job of director for the State Office of Victim Services? So I had been a special victims prosecutor for 14 years in Westchester County. And at the time, I had sort of done everything that you know I wanted to do. I tried murder cases and, and all kinds of things criminal cases, and I decided that I needed a change. So I went to the Second Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Manhattan. I was there for 13 years, but I really, really missed this work. And it was a, an intellectual challenge, but less of an emotional feel to, to the job. So someone reached out to me and said that Tina Stanford was going to a different job and that this job was available, and it sounded right up my alley. And so I got my resume in, and the rest is history. What sort of adjustment was there for you as you took on this job, either as becoming an administrator of a large, well, comparably large <laughs> agency, or just the work itself? Was there a learning curve or some sort of adaptation for you? Well, the good thing was that at the court, I ran a large office of lawyers and administrative staff. So I had extensive management experience that way. But I think what appealed to me about this job was that it gave me the ability to really be a lot more creative. And because I had had so much victim experience prior to that, that I sort of knew what needed to be done to some extent. And I thought that this would be a perfect job that would allow me to be really innovative in how we responded to victimization in the state. Well, during your 10 years at the helm, what do you see as the biggest change to the delivery of services for victims in New York? Our goal has been, and I think we've achieved a great part of it, is to increase access and eligibility for crime victims. We have exponentially increased the amount of money that went out to victim assistance programs. We have unbelievably increase the amount of training and technical assistance that we provide to those programs. And we have been really thoughtful about how to expand eligibility for victim compensation. And so we have increased the amounts of money that go for victim compensation. We've increased the categories of people that would be eligible. So for example, what we do is, you know, we were looking at who's not getting served and why? And in this particular category of person, like why isn't that person eligible? Because when the statute was first enacted, it really was focused on people with physical injuries. And then it has sort of morphed over time to acknowledge that people who suffer victimization aren't always physically injured, that they may suffer from emotional injury or otherwise. And so a lot of what we've been doing is acknowledging those realities and getting statutes passed that increase access to 
compensation. So for example, somebody who was the victim of a carjacking might not have been eligible for compensation because they weren't physically injured, but they're clearly a victim. Has the expanded accessibility, the ability to a larger pool of applicants potentially file claims, has that actually translated, though, to more people receiving benefits or accessing services through the 200-plus programs that you fund? Yes. And what we saw at certain times, like during the pandemic, where there was much increased incidence of domestic violence and child abuse, we did see an increase in people accessing services. What we've always talked about at OVS is we have to fund for capacity. And even in an area of the state where there is a smaller population, we still have to account for the fact that there are going to be people up there who are going to suffer as victims of crime. And so even a program that doesn't have a lot of people that are coming to the program, they need to be there. You know, we have to have doors open for people so that they can access services if they need them. You talked about the evolution in recognizing uh, what a victim might need and who constitutes a victim in New York. Has that been a challenge administratively to implement? Have you found that people you work with or agencies that you coordinate with have a certain way of thinking about who is a victim and what a victim needs? Or has there been a warm embrace of this transition? There's definitely a warm embrace by us of expanding how we think about victimization. And I think an acknowledgement of how victimization can create a lot of other problems for people. So for example, what I saw as a prosecutor was that people who are victims of, let's say, domestic violence, they might have a whole host of other issues that come up in the civil legal realm. So they may need help in immigration court. They may need help in housing, family court. So we recognize, okay, it's not just getting a victim shelter, for example, but there's a whole host of other complications that arise as a result of the victimization that we have to be aware of. We also recognize that it's not one size fits all and that certain groups of people are subject to hate crimes and that their victimization looks completely differently from somebody else. So we are in the midst of a comprehensive needs assessment to address victimization in communities of color, LGBTQ, the Asian community, the Jewish community, especially communities that we have seen over the last few years to be targeted because of who they are. And so their needs may be different. We're always looking at, you know, what are the gaps? What needs aren't we meeting? We've done, I think, a lot of really creative things. So, for example, we have collaborated with docs, for example. and you the might, Department of Corrections. Yeah, Department of Corrections. So you might think, well, that seems like a weird relationship. But we have brought in trainers to assist training corrections officers to understand trauma. And so we have been involved for the last few years with a really comprehensive training of corrections officers to train the trainer to train other corrections officers on trauma so that they understand not only their own trauma and how they react when they're working, but also to the trauma of people under their care. And that has also led to our expanding the Prison Rape Elimination Act project where we fund a hotline and we fund programs all over the state that do mostly online or, or telephonic therapy for victims 
of sexual and domestic assault in prison. The hope is not only that, that people who suffer those victimizations are worthy of getting care, but also that it may lessen tension and violence within the prison itself. So it's just some of the things that you know lead us to think really differently about who's a victim in the state and how we can be of help. Are we seeing any progress uh, on the efforts to diminish the sexual violence in our prisons and correctional settings? Yes, people are really utilizing the services. And I, I have to give props to docs because under their leadership, they have been an incredible partner, not just with us, but also with the advocates to make these services available for people. And, you know, most people get out of prison at some point. And so how do we want them to come out of prison, traumatized or those who have had a support system while they were in there? During your tenure, there were tragically a number of mass violence attacks, many resulting in multiple deaths. So I'm curious what events or victims' experiences might stick with you, you know, long after you leave this office? They all do. Obviously, Buffalo was the most recent um, event in May of 2022, which was an event that not only devastated that community, but really opened up a conversation for a lot of people about when a tragedy of that magnitude hits a community that is so underserved. And we've responded to a number of mass violence events. We responded to the Tribeca case, the subway shooting in Brooklyn. You know, there's been a number of cases. The agency before it became OVS were responding to the Binghamton shooting in 2009. But a lot of those incidents, especially ones that occur in New York City, they have a system there that's really set up to respond to those kinds of events. Um, And in Buffalo, because it was such a targeted act and it was aimed not only at um, targeting a particular demographic, black Americans, Um, But it hit a community that was already reeling from a lot of disinvestment and from racism. So it was the emotional impact of that event was very different um, than a lot of the other events that, that we've responded to. And I think it was educational for a lot of us to see what happens in a community like that where there has been such disinvestment and a lack of trust between the systems and how people, are they willing to even accept help to come in because they're not trusting that people have their best interests at heart. And it was very sad on top of just the the magnitude of the tragedy itself, but to see um, a community that had been ignored for so long, you know, we, we saw how, you know, highways were built through the neighborhood and, and they did not have access to a lot of the services that we take for granted. You know, Tops was the only supermarket in the neighborhood. And when that went out, a lot of their services um, that they relied on Tops for were gone. People were afraid to go to, to grocery stores and in white neighborhoods. I mean, it, it really was kind of a, a cascading effect um, on that community. So I think for me, it really underscored how um, all of these events, as tragic as the incident itself is, that we really have to kind of look beyond that and see how the, whole, the community as a whole would be able to respond. 
And after a quick break, we'll have more with Elizabeth Cronin, the outgoing director of the State Office of Victim Services, who served in the capacity for more than 10 years. Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse. For listeners just joining us, we're doing our HR-mandated exit interview for Elizabeth Cronin, who, after more than a decade, is stepping down as director of the State Office of Victim Services. Before the break, we were talking with Elizabeth about the state's response to the mass shooting in Buffalo in 2022 and the services provided to victims in the aftermath. We were very lucky because we have 12 programs in Erie County that we were able to call on to mobilize and to help people in the community. You know, I remember studying Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? And you start with the most basic stuff. And it played out in real time for me there because we mobilized all these mental health experts and we had people from, you know, the Red Cross and and the National Organization of Victim Assistance and the FBI advocates and everybody was there. And people needed like food, they needed diapers, they needed to feel safe. I mean, in all of the the very basic level of Maslow's hierarchy, that's what we needed to do to get people to even feel safe enough and open enough to get other kinds of help. So it was an interesting difference in what we've seen in other responses. Well, as you look back on your time with the office, do you have any unfinished business or regrets? No regrets. It's always interesting when you start with a new organization because you don't know the players, you don't know the history, you don't know the dynamics. And I have been so blessed to have such amazing people. And government workers get such a bad reputation, and it's anything but there. And when I came in, I just was very open to whatever they could teach me. And it's been a real education. Your workforce is where the rubber meets the road. And I've been able to utilize the skills and the intelligence of all of the people there to really take this agency to a whole different place. You know, I think it's in a very different place now from when I started, and I'm very proud of that. But a lot of it was done with the work of the staff. Well, looking ahead, how concerned are you about the likely drop in federal dollars for crime victims and the possibility that the state won't backfill all of the lost funding? Well, I am very grateful that we have a governor who understands what crime victims need and what crime victims' dynamics are. She and other state agencies have been good partners in this. We are obviously very concerned about the funding. I mean, the the federal funding has been a source of real concern over the last few years. When I started in this agency, our federal funding was like $26 million. And then it went up to a high of $199 million. And now it's back down, not quite to 26, but it could be down to 40 something. I mean, it's huge. And there's a real recognition by the administration and by the state that we need to make sure that our crime victims are taken care of because victimization ends up, it's a public health crisis. You know, just as we see with gun violence, that it's a public health crisis. If you don't take care of people, 
the problems are not going to go away. They're just going to get shuttled off to someone else. And so um, by investing in people who have been wounded, whether emotionally or physically, that the state is not only doing the right thing by those people, but it's doing a, the right thing by the system. So I know there's a lot of advocacy going on at the federal level right now to find other ways to infuse the Crime Victim Fund with federal funding. Of course, Congress right now is sort of... It's a disaster. A disaster. <laughs> and a lot of the good work that people want to do is getting kind of held up because of the nonsense. But I know we've had many, many conversations with the state, with the governor's office, with the Office of Budget. They know how serious the issue is, and I think they're going to take it very seriously. And I'm hopeful for the future and for my, my successor. So assuming the federal government doesn't get its act together and the decrease in funding does happen, would it make sense for the state legislature and the governor to come together and replace any lost federal dollars? Well, I think they're going to have to have that conversation. And, and I think that the way that, that the funding for the federal and the state has always been is that it's based on fines and fees and surcharges. And, you know, with criminal justice reform, there's been a lot of focus, rightly so, on whether we should be fining people, especially people who can't afford mm -hmm. to pay them. So, you know, do you want to find people so much that they either go into bankruptcy or have some other consequences, or do we not do that? On the other hand, if you do that, you are now hurting an agency like mine that relies on that. So I think there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of focus on whether that's a sustainable model going forward. So that's something that I think is going to have to be looked at both at the federal and the state level um, as to whether or not governments should commit general funds to sustaining crime victim services. It's like in, in some places in New York City, for example, people might have access to individuals who are willing to donate money, you know, to a particular organization. But in small areas like in, ups, you know, in northern New York or in the Finger Lakes or somebody somewhere else, they, they might not have access to those kinds of individuals. And so they're really going to suffer. And in some of those areas, they're the ones that need the services, you know, just as much as, as anybody else. So, so that is a big concern. So in 2023, the governor signed legislation creating additional pathways, basically, for New Yorkers who are victims of crimes to access victim services, primarily to allow them to circumvent making a police report and still get help. What needs to happen to ensure new pathways are both accessible while also having appropriate checks or, or oversight? Right. That's the rub, um, is figuring out where the sweet spot there is. So we have to make sure that people are victims of a crime because that's what the money is there for. You know, we're not a social service agency. We are an agency set up for crime victims. So um, we have to make sure that the documentation is sufficient so that we can be assured that this person was the victim of a crime. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to make sure that, um, you know, the crime fits within what we're able to do. So, for example, um, under the federal funding stream, we can't fund property crimes. So anything that we do that is the result of somebody being like defrauded or having property stolen, that has to come from state funds. Well, our state funding is far less than our federal funding. So we have to, to think about that as to, you know, how we expand for those kinds of crimes. 
Now, right now, we accept alternate forms of reporting. So a person who reports to a hospital for a sexual assault and gets a forensic rape exam, they don't have to file a police report. You can get an order of protection. You can go to family court. You can file a, a report with Child Protective Services or Adult Protective Services. So we've already sort of moved in that direction. One thing that will have to be considered going forward is New York is the only state in the country that has unlimited medical and counseling reimbursement. Right. So there's no cap at all on that. But what that means is that um, if you're going to continue adding to the pool of people who are eligible, which is a good thing, um, you have to think on the other end, you know, are we going to be able to afford that? Like you don't want to be in a position where at some point you're just going to have to there has to be a cutoff and you say, oh, well, the rest of you are not going to be eligible because we've run out of money. We don't want to be in that kind of a position. So all of these factors are things that we're going to be thinking about over the next almost two years now when the law actually goes into effect. And it gives us time, you know, our, our um, claims assistant program that keeps track of all our claims, it's old. You know, we need to upgrade it anyway. So hopefully there'll be some funding that comes along with this ultimately that will allow the agency to to really get up to speed. Do you think that same sort of oversight that you're talking about for these new processes needs to extend to the 200 plus programs that you fund as well? Are they doing the same sort of uh, checks that crimes were committed or when people come to them looking for services, do they provide services and ask questions later if they're asked at all? They don't have the same responsibility um, as we do for the compensation end of it because, you know, as the fiduciary of federal funding, we have to be cautious about um, our spending that way so that the programs are open um, to anyone who comes to them for help. And so, for example, if someone is a crime victim and they go to a program in their neighborhood that is not set up specifically for their particular issue, so if it's a DV program but they're the victim of something else, um, they can still go there to file a claim um, or that program will be able to refer them out to another program. Well, finally, how much are you going to miss driving from Westchester to Albany? Well, you know, the day I got offered the job, um, I went and stopped and bought a Subaru, <laughs> as you can imagine, because uh, I was driving a little car that had rear-wheel drive, which didn't seem like it would make it to Albany. I have actually found a community here, which I was really surprised about. And I, if someone had told me, you know, in July of 2013 that I would be going to Albany <laughs> every week for 10 years, I would have said they were out of their minds. Um, but I have found an incredible community here. Um, and I, I really can say, and it, it sounds silly, but I have loved this job beyond measure. It was a very tough decision for me to make. But in a way, you know, after 10 years, I think it's, it's helpful for an organization to have some fresh views. You know, I have taken it to the point that I saw, but, you know, I always think that somebody else will come in with fresh ideas, you know, a different way of looking at things, and I think that's really healthy for the organization as much as I'm going to miss it. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been speaking with Elizabeth Cronin. She is the outgoing director of the State Office of Victim Services. Elizabeth, thank you so much for making the time, and congrats on the career Thank change. you. Always great to be here. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Office of Victim Services, they should check out ovs.ny.gov.
Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.